Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, good to see you. Thank you for having me. Good to see you too. I'm so excited to have you on the show because you have such an incredible journey from the social sector to technology to leading Accelerating Asia. Uh, and so I think you have so many hats from not just being an incubator and nurturer of uh, so many great people, but also taking on that investor hat as well. <laughs> and so I'm very much fascinated to share your story. No, thank you for having me. I'm excited to share it. And I'm sure there's going to be hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. The hard question is, mm. tell us about yourself, who you are. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gosh, starting off with the hardest question of them all. So I'm the co-founder of Accelerating Asia and general partner at Accelerating Asia Ventures. We run a startup accelerator, a venture fund, and a consulting arm that works with multinationals, governments, development organizations on startup engagement programs. Outside of work, I look after Asia Pacific for an organization called Shaper Impact Capital, which is connecting impact investors and impact startups. I'm also a global shaper. I run a podcast of my own called The Doing Good Podcast. And yeah, I mean, I have a lot of hobbies. I don't know if you want to know those two. <laughs> I'm really into aerial yoga right now. Uh, <laughs> and I feel like I'm unleashing my inner circus being. Just got a dog and she is a little Westie. What else? Oh, I'm into gardening. Who isn't, right, with COVID going on right now? <laughs> I could go on. I have a lot of hobbies. Yeah. What's interesting is that, tell us more about what you were like as a kid. What I was like as a kid, uh, I think I was one of those overachieving kids who, yeah, I was always getting good grades. <laughs> I remember actually my dad, so my dad's Indian, my mom's Chinese, and my dad, if I'd come back with anything less than an A, he'd be like, why didn't you get an A? Or you come back with an A, be like, why didn't you get an A plus? <laughs> so yeah, that was definitely ingrained in me. But I think from my mom's side, it was always about trying new things. Um, I was always doing a lot of different types of activities, different types of dances, martial arts, arts and craft, volunteering as well. So my mom really made sure that I did a lot of new things as I was growing up. What was interesting is that you grew up in Australia and you started kind of like working. And what was that like? Yeah, I was actually born in Zimbabwe. So I had my early childhood there, finished high school and did university in Australia and yeah, started working there as well. I always joke with people that when I moved to Australia from Zimbabwe, I didn't know I was brown until I got to Australia. And that sounds like a really dumb thing to say, but I think you only realize the color of your skin or your race when you're a little bit different to other people or when that difference is kind of made known to you. So that was kind of my, my first interaction with Australia. And to be honest, when I first moved there, it felt like a holiday because we were living on the Gold Coast, there's the beach and everything. So for the first couple of months, it's like, yeah, this is really great. 
And then, you know, when you've been on holiday for too long, or that's what it felt like <laughs> we're on holiday for too long, when are we going to go home? That's when it kind of started to settle down that or settle in rather that this is the new home. We need to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, it was tough moving at a teen kind of age. You're learning so much about yourself. You've obviously made friends already. You're kind of uprooting your life. But moving from Zimbabwe, I know why my parents did it. I mean, there were so many opportunities in Australia for us. And so very grateful that they did that for us. Yeah. And you said that the difference in culture and color was made known to you. That didn't sound fun. <laughs> How did that happen? Yeah, yeah I mean... I would put it this way. So my high school, I was the only brown person in my high school. And so, yeah, you <laughs> you know you're pretty different. You, you stand out. I mean, Australia has changed a lot. In particular, the Gold Coast where we moved has changed a lot since then. It's very multicultural now. But yeah, just not even that long ago, it wasn't that way. I think, yeah, there were definitely some uncomfortable experiences, but... I think a lot of them came out of just ignorance rather than being malicious. Or if it was malicious, I have interpreted it as being ignorance, <laughs> which is good for me because you can kind of brush it off if you look at things that way. Yeah. And how do you think that changed you growing up? Because that's an awkward fact to know about yourself. Hmm. I don't know how it changed. I mean... I think I was lucky in that when I went to university, I went to an international college. Um, so I lived on campus and it was half Australian and half international. And from my parents as well, we, we've always traveled. You know, They come from completely different backgrounds. You know, My mom's Chinese, my dad's Indian. They've traveled all over the world. They've lived in so many different countries. So the idea of having a lot of different cultures and being open to different points of view and different cultures has always been there. In terms of being uncomfortable about it, I think that just happens when some people just don't have that view of the world. I don't think that that is necessarily my problem, something that I should take around and carry as a weight with me. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know if that really answers the question, but it's a tough, that's a tough question to answer. <laughs> Why is it tough? Because um, I, I guess I never really thought about how it would impact my growing up. And I'm sure it has because it's a memory that is, I guess, etched into the back of my mind. It's also, I guess, part of the reason that I'm now based in Singapore, because Singapore to me is the ultimate global city. Everybody here thinks about not just Singapore, they think about doing business with everywhere in the region all around the world. Whereas I always found working in Australia, it was very Australia first, let's look inwards before looking out. So yeah, I think it's definitely impacted my life, but I think I was probably always destined to travel, if that makes sense. If I'm looking at how my, my parents have lived their lives, I don't think settling in one place was, was really in my future. And let's talk about that, right? Because after graduating from university, you moved to Singapore. So what made you be a factor and make a decision? Yeah, so I was working in Australia at the time. And 
one of my friends is Singaporean and he was moving back to Singapore and he was like, you know what? You should totally come too. <laughs> and that's literally what kickstarted the whole thing. At the time, I just wasn't really enjoying my job. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my career. It was kind of just a bit lost. Um, and so the idea of going somewhere new, trying something new was really appealing. And so I reached out to basically everyone I knew that had some kind of connection to Singapore. I think at that time I'd only been in Singapore for a day stopover. <laughs> so I really didn't know the place. And one of my other friends who was living in Singapore at the time, she came back to me and she said, hey, you and women is based here. You know, they have an office here. They're always looking for interns. Why don't you just try? Because the best way to kind of come, or I get, get settled in Singapore is to be physically here and to network and just meet people. And so that's what I did. I applied for a three-month internship. I ended up getting it, uh, which I was super excited about because I'd always wanted to work for the UN. It was a big dream of mine. <laughs> and I remember them saying to me at the start, well, before I started the internship, you know, typically we are only hiring new grads. You've got a few years of work experience already. Just want to set the expectation that you're not going to get a job with us. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's the UN. I even had a little, the UN Charter book. I still have it with me. This is from a politics course in university because I was like, I'm going to work for the UN. And I brought that over with me to Singapore. So I was just so excited about it. But yeah, that's what kickstarted now over eight years in Singapore. Wow. Now, do you remember what it was like, you know, because like you said you knew that you were always going to be traveling to be that cosmopolitan point of view. Do you remember what it was like moving to Singapore? Yeah. How did you feel? You know, I was more excited than I was scared. I don't remember being scared. I think I was scared before I made the decision. And the reason was the stipend for an internship is, is really low. Singapore is not the cheapest country to be living in. And essentially, I'd be leaving my job, my family, and going to a place that I didn't really know. And just trusting that the friends that I ended up crashing on their couch would be okay with it for <laughs> a few months. I think that period of time where there was the uncertainty, I was really scared. I guess not scared, anxious, anxious about it. But as soon as I made the decision, as soon as I was at the airport flying over, it was just excitement, absolute excitement. The whole three months to me of that internship was just amazing. <laughs> which you converted into a full-time job, which is where I met you. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. A month into my internship, my manager resigned and then I applied for her job and ended up getting it. And yeah, that three-month internship turned into three years there. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I remember being part of Conjunct Consulting and very much meeting you. Mm -hmm. And both of us were talking a little bit about the social sector and some of the needs there. Yeah. I've got to ask, what's interesting is that you have this love for the UN, you have this love for what you shared, a cosmopolitan point of view. So why the social sector? What did you take away? Because you did this and then after that you slowly transitioned into technology. Mm. But before that, what did you learn from that time working at UN Women? Yeah, so I think the transition started before UN Women. My jobs had always been bouncing back and forth between non-profit and for-profit. I guess the theme was for-profit, loved the fast-paced nature of it. 
the pay obviously is better <laughs> for many for-profit organizations. But there's this kind of question of why am I doing what I'm doing? I'm the kind of person that needs to have a purpose and a reason for doing my job. I'm not just going to just do my job. And that's something that that kind of world never really satisfied for me. And I'd also done nonprofit roles before that, where it's great, you can really see the impact of the work that you're doing, but they tend to operate a lot slower. There's just a pace, a complete pace to friends. There's usually bureaucracy involved. The fundraising process, I hate as well, because I feel like you're always out there with your hands out asking for money. There's the whole issue of not wanting to fund operations and people's salaries which just blows my mind because I'm like, you know, some of these organizations are solving the biggest problems in the world and you don't want to attract the best people to come and solve these problems or even compensate adequately the people who are working on it. So there's just always been a back and forth between the two industries. At UN Women, what really, I guess, awoke at the back of my mind was the whole idea of social entrepreneurship. Um, it was my first time really interacting with social entrepreneurs all around the world, um, seeing all the different types of business models that they had and the way that they were approaching some of the causes that they were working on. And then at the same time, I did do a lot of fundraising for the organization, working with a lot of multinationals and got to see how they looked at social impact from a more of a top-down perspective, how some of them were integrating it into their businesses all purely using it for marketing and greenwashing, right? Uh, there was a whole spectrum of how they were approaching it. That's what really got me excited about technology and how it could be a tool for scaling some of this work. And in particular, the startup world, or I guess the, the business world as well. I think many entrepreneurs go out there to solve a problem. There's no reason why business needs to be bad or considered bad all of the time. So yeah, that's that's the part of me that awoke during this time. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Why did you decide to go found uh, Celebrating Asia? Yeah, I don't know if it was a, a conscious decision that I was going to be a founder. I didn't one day wake up and be like, I'm a founder now. <laughs> it just kind of happened. So myself and my co-founder, Craig Dixon, were running a startup accelerator um, in, in Singapore. Um, it's called Murudi and it was backed by Telstra. And they were winding down the program. And at the time, we had a lot of startups reaching out to us, funds as well, people in the ecosystem saying, you can't let this thing die. Like, what are you guys going to do about it? And that's really when we just started to explore the idea of potentially setting up something of our own. I guess the challenge of that was figuring out a business model. There had been independent accelerator programs in the region before, but they tend to not do so well because, I mean, just the business model is really hard. So when we first started, the goal was really just to figure out the business model we gave ourselves a couple of months to make it work. Otherwise, we would go find jobs. And I guess part of the attraction of starting something ourselves is that you know, well, you kind of know what to expect with a job. We go into some kind of innovation role in a big corporate, but when you start something of your own, you have no idea what to expect. <laughs> and so I guess that's kind of why I say, 
it didn't really think about it as, as founding something. It was just a natural progression of this is what we're going to try, this is what we're going to test and, and see how it works. And what did you discover and learn? Well, looking back, so we've just been three years now since Accelerating Asia started. And if I look back on it, I realized that we essentially started three different businesses at the same time. <laughs> because usually people start an accelerator or they start a fund or they start a consulting business. We started all three at the same time. And I think it was the right decision in that all three different parts of it power each other and build on each other. But at the time, it was a lot of work. <laughs> like It was a lot of stress and it was a lot of work. And it was a lot of things that were completely out of my comfort zone and that I had to learn in a very short period of time. So how did you learn how to do it? Trial and error. <laughs> <laughs> so didn't learn by learning, just learn by doing and give it a shot. Uh, learn by doing, learn by doing. But also, I think this is a question that I get asked a lot by students because I do a lot of school talks and they're always like, what kind of things do you need to know to be an entrepreneur? And especially the female students are so um, concerned with trying to learn everything before they decide that they're going to start something. I guess at the back of my mind had that mentality as well without really being conscious of it. But what I've learned is that you don't need to know it. You just need to know when to ask for help who to ask help for with. And you also just need to be adaptable. I think I've realized now that if I really put my mind to something, I can learn whatever I need to learn, which is not how I looked at education or self-development before. That's kind of how I'm looking at it now. It's interesting because there you are and you have been obviously been part of the social sector, then you have been part of an incubator helping other people be founders. And now you're a founder yourself. I'm just kind of curious, what would you say are some myths or misconceptions about being a founder? Oh, there's so many. Well, I think one is that you need to know everything. The second thing is that one of the things people ask me is, what kind of skills do you need? Or like, how are your skills transferable? How did your education kind of play into what you're doing? And I think that goes back to the point that you can learn whatever you need to when you need to learn it. I mean, obviously there are certain professions, being a doctor, <laughs> being a lawyer, there are certain skill sets that obviously in order to practice in that space, you need to have a level of qualification. But for everything else, I think if you put your mind to it, you can learn it. And I think the other misconception is about hustling, that you always need to be hustling. Founders don't sleep, they like don't eat, they don't have a life. And you're certainly seeing a change in that messaging, especially when people are talking about mental wellness and things like that. But I think you can be really smart with your time too. You don't need to be working ridiculous hours in order to get things done. Mm, amazing. That's a true part of the story, right? Which is this is myth of founders, hero. So they don't sleep, they don't eat, like you said. What's the reality of a lifestyle? What is a day in the life of... Um, you, when you were founding in the early days with Craig versus now, three years down the road, could you compare and contrast those lives? Yeah, I think three years ago, starting out was a lot of naive excitement <laughs> about different things. 
just really not realizing how hard some of the things we were trying to do would be or end up being. Day in my life was actually, you know, if I was to, to think about it, I felt like I was stumbling around in the dark a lot at the start. I didn't really, I was trying to find my footing, didn't really know what I was doing. I was probably a lot more anxious about things because you don't know what you're doing. You're probably more anxious about it. I mean, it's the first company or first three companies <laughs> that I've started. So there was a lot of that. Whereas I think Craig was a lot more chill because he started companies before and his personality in general is a lot more chill than I am. I think I'm a bit more high strung. <laughs> I think now I'm definitely a lot more chill. I'm, I feel like I'm more confident in my ability to make decisions. It's funny. So I don't know if you know a fingerprint for success. So basically it's a, it's a tool that measures your different motivations. So kind of like Myers-Briggs, how they come out with all the different personalities, except that this is not your personality. It's the kind of environment that you thrive in or the way that you make decisions, the way that you communicate. And the thing that I like about it is that everything there can change. It's not saying that you are set in stone, this kind of person. And saying, at this point in time, this is how you're working. So I've benchmarked myself since I started Accelerating Asia and now. And there is a massive difference between the two amours <laughs> that were there. I think one, because I wasn't really sure of myself. Like back then, I was, I guess, making a lot of decisions with other people's input. So... I think one of the friction points that Craig and I probably had early on is it would take me ages to make a decision because I'm like asking this person, that person, I'm doing research, I'm trying to get all of this information and then I'm making the decision. But you can't do that all the time. Sometimes decisions just need to be made quickly. So that was kind of one of the friction points we had, whereas Craig just he makes a decision. Like he maybe consults a few people and he's like, down, <laughs> he's made the decision. Whereas now, three years later, my decision-making has completely changed. I'm very quick to make decisions, <laughs> maybe too quick sometimes, probably. <laughs> but I think when you've been running a business for a while, you start to see similar patterns come up and then you can make those decisions quicker. So yeah, I'm a lot more chill now. <laughs> well, uh, and what interesting thing is that you and I, when we caught up recently, were kind of like laughing a little bit about the similarities and differences between the social sector and the tech world. What would you recap as your point of view on the similarities? Yeah, well, we were we talking about fundraising as a, a similarity. So one was that, especially with us going out and, and raising a fund, we've also been on the the other end of the fundraising process, so going out with our hands out. <laughs> it's very interesting to see the similarities in the way that people look at investing or donating. And I think one of the things in particular I mentioned earlier was the operational cost side of things. People don't want to kind of give in that space. Similarities, we all want to make the world a better place. Yes, yes. That's true. The amount of startup founders that come to us with these big, grand visions of how they're going to make the world a better place, which I love, by the way, because I think in general, everyone wants to do good. I don't think anyone or very few people go out and want to create chaos or, or do bad. You know, everyone genuinely wants to contribute in some way. They just go about in different ways. 
and startup founders, in particular in this region, by nature of countries that we're working in, um, there are so many big problems to be solved and often entrepreneurs are at the forefront of solving those problems. So it's very similar to the social impact space, I think, anyway. Yeah, Mm. I agree about that as well. What would you say are the differences? I'd say the pace. The pace of work in the startup world is so much different to the social impact space and the jargon. (laughs) My goodness. I think there's jargon in both sectors, but I feel like the jargon in the impact space ironically excludes people from being able to be involved in that space, which just goes against everything that that whole ecosystem stands for. Examples are, you know, we work with early stage entrepreneurs who are creating impact in different ways and just setting up a simple impact measurement framework for some of these startups is an absolute headache because the standards that are out there are just these ridiculously bureaucratic governance heavy type things, which are just unrealistic for any organization to implement. So yeah, I think generally the pace the bureaucracy, the jargon. <laughs> it's a big, big difference. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I agree with you about that because the pace definitely has been different, I think. Mm-hmm. But I think what's common is also the feeling like you're being called on to do a lot with very little. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think that's similar, right? Yeah. Which is on the impact side, I think you're given very little but you expected to do a lot. And in the startup land, no matter what you're given, big or small tickets, yeah. You still expect to do a lot as well. Yeah. So yeah. I think there is that difference. And both aren't really getting paid, right? <laughs> <laughs> Another commonality. <laughs> Shocker. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. I think you're entirely correct on that one. <laughs> yeah, both are not getting paid. That's so funny. Another one was some large companies, if they're blitzscaling in a negative way, then they actually turn out to be the biggest charities in Southeast Asia mm. because <laughs> they've been running losses for the past 10 years oh, yeah. on a net basis, which all of it goes to the consumer. They're the biggest charities in Southeast Asia if you grow them in a certain way. That's so funny. I guess that's, that's the question about the whole VC world. Are we essentially propping up companies who would have otherwise died? And continuing that that journey, yeah, I ask myself that question a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And on that hand, all the founders are banging your door saying, why aren't you giving me money? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the same as the whole whole charity space. You're giving donations out there. That organization is not going to be self-sufficient or self-sustainable. They're just purely reliant on funding from donors coming in. And some startups build their business models that way, that they're purely reliant on just raising VC money. So I guess that's a a similarity as well. Yeah. I think the tricky part for a lot of it is like, what's the core of the engine? Mm -hmm. I think for the social sector, it's a little bit more obvious, which is the truth is these are groups of people that society is not taking care of in one way or another. And so we are trying to figure out a way of how to redistribute something for them, um, mm-hmm, either mm-hmm. time, attention, services, and that's dependent on philanthropy, it's dependent yeah. on government grants, it's dependent on donations. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a straightforward yeah. attempt to rebalance, right? Yeah, and I totally agree with that. I mean, there are 
there are many social issues or just generally issues out there that I don't think are appropriate for a business to be be the model that is making that change in that space. Yeah, so I totally agree with that. Yeah. I think what's interesting for startups is that it's really trying to like lend money for the future to be accelerated into today, which is a bit different, right? In the social sector, you're never really thinking about the future. It's just like, these are the people I'm helping today and let's redistribute today, in a sense. Though, I mean, many charities go out there saying that we're essentially trying to put ourselves out of a role. But by the way that they're doing that, it ends up creating more dependency than actually putting themselves out of a job. So... Gosh, there are so many issues we can talk about. <laughs> I always hated that phrase so bad. We're trying to put ourselves out of a job. <laughs> I, I mean, this is it's so... I always hated that phrase. Even nobody says that. I was like, does a baker ever say like, my job is to make myself out of a job? No, like if you're a great baker, you should keep baking, right? Does it make sense? Like no, nobody rolls around saying, a vaccine scientist doesn't say, well, my job is to create a vaccine that's so good that... I'll never have a job ever again. It's like, no, no, no. If you made a great vaccine, you should make more vaccines. I always hated that phrase because it was like a mixture of, I felt like I was going the wrong direction, basically. Yeah. Well, I guess the theory behind it is that you're doing such a good job about, I don't know, ending global warming that your organization would not exist anymore after that. But I think the reality is there's always going to be different types of things that, like you said, really well, need rebalancing in the world. Yeah, so you're not really out of a job. Yeah, exactly. Can you imagine like someone like Jeff Bezos is like, my job is to create a company that puts myself out of a job. And everyone's going to be like, that's bonkers. Nobody, I don't know, it's such a weird stat. So it's weird for people to encourage people to say that, I think, because it's so such a double standard, mm-hmm. which is we want our baker we want our artists to keep doing what they're doing and never work themselves out of a job, which is that if you're doing such a great job, do more of it. Yeah. And it's also weird when the practitioners are also saying that as well. Yeah. It's, it's honestly the only industry that I've heard people say that about themselves. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> That'd be so, I don't know. Which is, I think, if you're a great nonprofit, you should keep going because justice for women's rights is not going to end. <laughs> you know, it's not going to end. Well, hopefully yeah. it does. That's the well, thing. <laughs> it's like in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. I think the, the, the issues will change, but the problem is still there. You want someone who has cut their teeth on tackling that problem for the past hundred years, right? Yeah. And I'm, some of those issues are so complex that for someone to say that in their working career, they're probably not going to solve that issue is, I guess, what you're kind of trying to say here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> well, starting to turn here, but what would you say has been a time that you have been brave? So I think it would be the move to Singapore because that had no guarantees of working out and essentially was a three-month internship that I was coming for, changing, well, leaving my job. And it was actually something that my then boyfriend, now husband, said to me at the time was, what is your worst case scenario? For me, at that time, my worst case scenario was it didn't work out in Singapore. I'd come back home and I would have probably chewed through quite a bit of my savings in that time. So I'd probably be living with my parents and then I'd find a job that I probably didn't like. One of the things he said to me was, if you're comfortable with that worst case scenario, then you've got nothing to lose. 
And I like my parents. I get along with them really well. I'm very lucky. I was already in a job that I didn't really like. So for me, this was three-month experiment of what if. What if it could be something more than just that three months? And it's actually shaped how I make most of my decisions now. It's like, am I comfortable with the worst case scenario? Yeah, I am. Let's go for it. That's how I made the decision about starting Accelerating Asia, about starting our fund, all kinds of things. So it's really guided how I've made decisions since. When you say that was the worst case scenario, was it a very logical conversation to ladder yourself into bravery or was it more of an intuitive thing? How how would you think about it? It's very logical. I think I'm probably, like if I'm comparing myself against my husband, he is a very logical person. Like <laughs> It's like A, B. <laughs> it's very, very logical how he makes decisions. And in the past, I probably led with more emotion and feelings than I did with logic. So I think that's one thing I learned from him is, okay, take a step back. What does this actually mean? How is this actually going to impact me? I think it's it's okay to, to feel things and to go with your gut on certain things. In this case, my gut was like, I'm not happy with what I'm doing right now. And I knew that. I knew I was not happy. Before that, I, I had like anxiety. I had a breakdown. So I knew in my gut that it just wasn't right. So Combine that with the logic kind of gave me the the push that I needed to just go and do it. Yeah. Amazing. Amber, I'd love to wrap things up by paraphrasing the three big themes I heard from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first, of course, was I love what you said about growing up and the differences being made known to you, which is probably the most diplomatic way I've ever heard it described. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it was just an interesting way just to hear about, you know, your view on the world and how you grew up and saw like the borders, but also culture and your dynamics around what you wanted. And the second thing that was really interesting, of course, was the insider story about how you came about to actually start to found Accelerating Asia, which so many startup founders all know about and apply to and go for it. And interesting to see yourself in that transition as a founder and operator who is building this for other founders. And lastly, of course, you know, it was a fun discussion and debate between the similarities and differences between the social sector and the tech world. For example, making the world a better place is mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the same. Fundraising is the same. And working very hard for very little is the same. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, Emra. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.